You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Samia. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. It's been a bit busy this week because in Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, our founding father, has just passed away. We are in mourning period because he created the modern Singapore for us. So this is probably my tribute to him in Analyze Asia. How about you? I've been great in London. I'm honestly glad to be part of something that could be that big. So far, my schedule has been fairly hectic, but I've managed to find a way to squeeze this in because I think this will be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I know you've been writing a few articles on the Apple Watch. I know we're going to talk about a few topics, but we're going to start with the Apple Watch. All right. You've been saying that there is no smartwatch market. I'll let you start first and then I will counter. All right. Let me start with the smartwatch market today. What I wrote about there being no smartwatch market was as it stands today, right? Because I looked at the numbers. I define the start of a market as when the dominant interaction model gets set. So in smartphones, it was a touchscreen. With tablets, it was again a touchscreen. And with smartwatches, it appears to be a touchscreen again. In that sense, the smartphone and tablet market started out with iOS and the smartwatch market unfortunately happened to start out with Samsung Gear. And when you look at the numbers, right, in year one shipments, smartwatch shipments were about 40% of smartphones and about 8% of tablets. And in year two, they were 33% of smartphones and about 6% of tablets. So they're actually losing ground compared to these markets. And the scale is far, far, far smaller. I think that should tell us at least something about what's going on in the market, which is that the use cases these devices target don't seem to be appealing to a sizable audience. There's a very, very small niche segment of the market that finds these devices useful because notification is useful for a consumer who is very, very connected. That's just not a huge proportion of the population. Mm -hmm. And as of now, I think that's where we are. So wouldn't be a pre-Apple Watch era would be something like the Pebble? I think the Pebble is probably considered a smartwatch in its earliest conception. So that is also bundled together with the Samsung's Android watch as well. So I did, and I deducted... mm -hmm the pebble as well from those numbers and, and that makes those numbers look worse oh what, what are the numbers like then uh you'd have to deduct about a million in shipments from them so you're probably looking at low single digit percentage points but here's the thing you see i think that the smart watch market is not a technology consumer electronics market it's actually what i would call a disposable luxury market there is a term for this in the luxury business we talk about something called mastige you know there is the prestige product and yes. in message is basically aspirational, but that goes into the luxury market itself. I mean, it's a term that right. I coined that I hear from people in the luxury business. If you were to look at Apple Watch, the way how it's being branded, the way how it talks about features, it talks about craftsmanship a lot more than talking about how well it is integrated with the iPhone. In fact, if you somebody actually even did what counts on the Apple website, and I think the iPhone was only barely mentioned twice, even though technologically wise is deeply integrated, you need an iPhone to be able to activate an Apple Watch. And honestly, here, I completely agree with you. Because when you're talking about a luxury market, that's, we are effectively talking about a niche market and not a mass market device. And second, if we're talking about a smartwatch, I mean, let's continue to use the term for now, mm. as a purely luxury device, then in that sense, I mean, I'm not an ex- expert in the luxury market. So does that compete head on with other luxury watches or does it propose to be a disruption to 
the existing luxury watch market? And if so, how? The existing luxury watch market is a little bit different. I didn't understand this until my wife put it in context to me because I used to, to be honest, I actually Uh coveted the Apple edition watch. Although it's beyond (laughs) my pay grade and definitely not buying one. (laughs) So what happened is actually that why people actually covet these or lust after good watches like Tuck Heuer is because of the craftsmanship of the watch. It's work on something called kinetic motion. So the watch is able to last for a very long time and it has a certain kind of craftsmanship. When Apple actually enters this market, they are also dealing with a particular traditional way of perceive of what a watch is. And they are challenging that watch with not just the craftsmanship, but also with a new perspective with technology. So I think they are also in the sense of trying to feel which part of the market that they are actually entering. And, and exactly, that, that's part of the puzzle for me as well. One of the things I harp on in pretty much all of my posts about wearables is that at this stage of the industry, you should not be making predictions, you should be asking questions. and You should be asking the right questions. And unfortunately, I haven't seen a lot of that in external analysis so far. And like you said, right, so what Apple is trying to do is trying to find out where they fit. So they're, what they're trying to do is, A, be a luxury of and fashion product. That's obviously a big question mark of how that's going to compete with existing luxury and fashion symbols. But on top of that, they're also trying to find use cases for the device. In their entire presentation, that's kind of what their emphasis was. You know, this is what you can use the device for. This is what you can use the device for. At least one of the big focus areas seems to be that Apple doesn't have a great idea of what the primary use case of the device. They're relying on app developers to discover those. And that's okay from one perspective, but there is a challenge here. In order for strong use cases to be developed for the Apple Watch, developers have to think of new kinds of apps, not just replicate smartphone apps on the smartwatch, right? It has to be beyond that. It has to be apps that could not possibly be developed on a smartphone. So for example, when smartphones and tablets came out, the reason some of the apps took off so well was because the apps that were developed for those smartphones could not possibly work on a PC. So for example, even something as simple as Angry Birds, because of the interaction model, and Angry Birds, the Angry Birds experience on a PC would be quite terrible. Mm. And it was far more natural on the smartphone because of the new interaction model. The nature of apps that take hold on a platform are usually driven by constraints that are placed by the platform owner. And those constraints are usually twofold. One, the dominant interaction model. And two, the context at which the device is used, which is partially affected by the form factor. So for example, a PC was a sit-down device. The primary interaction model was the keyboard and and the mouse. And a lot of software that was developed for it had to fit those constraints. As you move to the smartphone, you move to a touchscreen model and a context where you carry the device pretty much everywhere. So therefore, gaming intervals became far shorter because you would have five or ten minutes and then you'd play it in those five or ten minutes right the, the apps had to be designed for that particular interaction model therefore you had new kinds of apps apps that weren't built for the pc same thing with tablets tablets were a sit-down device their interaction model was the same as smartphones but the context was very different a tablet was not a device you would use everywhere it was a sit-down device similar to a pc but the interaction model was similar to a smartphone therefore you had apps like flipboard where you could lean back and read and the user interface was based on that now, when I look at smart watches, the dominant interaction model is pretty much the same as smartphones. It's mostly touch. For the Apple Watch, the digital crown is interesting, but that's not the dominant interaction model there. That seems to be an add-on. And in terms of context, there aren't a whole lot of context where you have access to your Apple Watch and don't have access to your smartphone. Broadly speaking, the Apple Watch and other smartwatches place the same constraints on developers that smartphones do. So in that sense, how do you develop new kinds of apps? That's a question I have. There's definitely one direction they can go, which I think they give some hints in the research kit, which is healthcare. You are already seeing in a lot of healthcare these days that people are trying to get away with things like stringers. 
I don't know whether okay. you've seen one TED talk where some guy was inventing something called a kind of plaster where basically you inject it through your pulse. If you look at Apple very carefully, they always make technology that is almost close to market. They will purchase okay. it. I mean, the clearest case is definitely the Touch ID, right? Where they buy yep. a very good authentication company to basically facilitate that. And I think the same would go for a watch. Because okay. the way I think a little bit more, if they are very methodical about looking for what technology they want to look at next. And I mm -hmm. think that healthcare is one of those. And I think that they are actually rethinking how to integrate healthcare into this Apple Watch. I can't see it for, you know, the traditional notification. Yes, it can be used as a smart band. You know, you go to yeah. any W hotel, you click, you know, your room, you get through. You know, those interaction models are still very confined to a smartphone. You can still do the same set of things on a smartphone. You can do the yeah. same thing with fitness. That's true. But if you were to look at it carefully, they might actually think of other areas that they want to venture in. I, I see healthcare actually as a very important part of Apple Watch because there's a lot of rumors talk where they engage the FDA in conversations. I think it's, exactly. it's to basically think about that in the same direction. You know what's the thing I really dislike what a lot of commentators or pundits talk about the Apple Watch? Mm -hmm. is that they claim that the Chinese will buy it. That part <laughs> seems a little... Okay. Uh, no, no, wait, I'll, I'll tell you the joke version okay, first. Right. The joke version is currently there is a corruption clampdown in China. People uh -huh. don't want to show off anything. In fact, the luxury business have gone down by a decline of 19% in the last year right. in that particular market. If they are trying to position Apple Watch for that luxury market, Nope, no chance. The second problem is that Apple is trying to position itself at, in this new so-called smartwatch market. It feels to me that they are more swatch-like than Tuck Hoyer-like. So I don't know whether the so-called the Chinese audience would actually prefer to buy Apple Edition versus a Tuck Hoyer. That's a good question. And that, that, was that question was never contested, right? No one has ever contested yeah, exactly. that question. I find it very... Funny because that's the part that I I have problems with with their I, business model. I, I get the feeling I get the feeling that a lot of analysts and commentators are afraid of asking questions about any product related to Apple. I, and I think it's almost like if you ask questions about Apple, you will get a fairly strong reaction from your audience. Even even if you say the Apple Watch is going to be very very successful, and it turns out to not be successful no one's really going to question you because a lot of people are wrong would be wrong about it so it's it's it almost seems like it's easier to be wrong in a group than right individually but going to this argument right that that, that was interesting to me as well so even when you look at uh, look at it from the perspective of disruption theory the, the job to be done the, the job that a tag hire or you know any uh, high-end watch like the rolex does is sort of confer status on the person who's buying the watch and if the apple watch comes out in the into the market and they try they, they seem to be they, at least from their from their marketing and from what analysts have talked about they seem to be targeting the same need in effect what they're doing is they're taking tag hire head on and it's not really a disruptive impact, at least so far, just based on their marketing. Correct, correct. Just to continue the story, I have this conversation with my wife for the longest time. And I keep telling her I have not put on a watch for the last 20 years because I felt that it's very tiring to put a watch on. And the reason why I buy an Apple edition is because I just want to annoy people. Those people <laughs> who carry tech hoyers and tell me how great their Rolex is and they say, I'm carrying the same watch, but it has better technology. So for me, I'm a technology geek. And my wife put it up front to me and said, that's not how people perceive luxury products. And she had to give me the entire education. And, and she gave me this really interesting point of view that Apple might be trying to introduce a different way of perceiving luxury 
that is about that she termed disposable luxury because because yeah, because the technology changes every two three years, right? So the inherent yeah, right. value of the Apple Watch is slightly different from how traditional luxury actually perceive products. That's true. And honestly, from that sense, I know a lot of people talk about that as being a challenge to Apple. But I think in in a way, it plays into Apple's hand. Apple's hands. A, it gives them an opportunity to drive revenue. But second, a person who's who's buying a Rolex for twenty thousand dollars is going to buy a Rolex once. A person who's buying an Apple Watch edition for ten thousand dollars is going to have to buy it multiple times. So I think <laughs> it does a better job showing off status than a, than a Rolex might in that sense. You know, if Apple were to say that we will change the internals of your watch every three years, if you just buy the ten thousand watch, it's still worth it, right? Probably, yeah. In that sense, yeah. <laughs> I I could see that coming out from a lot of people because until today, no one knows exactly how many Apple edition watches are going to be in production. Uh, and that's true. My guess is it's not something that you can mass manufacture. Because that takes away from its value. Which watch will you get? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea. I, I've tried to deal with an. I mean, this is me as a consumer, which is not the mass market at all. I've been dealing with like a couple of watches, a, a Fitbit and a, an Android Wear watch. And I've honestly not seen the value in it. I, it's a, it, like you said, it's very, very tiring to put a watch on every day, and it's even more tiring to have to charge it every other day. And I think the Apple Watch can only charge for I think the fastest is about eight hours, right? If it's no apps, then you just run twenty four hours a day. But it runs on apps hours, probably five to eight, yeah, think, eighteen, eighteen hours, right? Eighteen, yeah, eighteen hours is what what Apple mentioned. I think they had a long list of things like if you use forty five minutes, ninety minutes of notifications, and forty five minutes of health tracking, or something like that. And it, <laughs> on average, it was it was eighteen hours. Yes, and, and guess what time do we actually charge the watch? It's usually when we are sleeping. Then how do you expect your watch to actually wake you up? Like the sleep pattern, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, like I said, there are a lot of questions around this category. And I, it's very puzzling that more people aren't asking these questions. I have another crazy theory is that I think that it's a Trojan horse for the phone. Well, that's, that's possible. But I think for it, for it to be a Trojan, a Trojan horse for, for the phone, it again needs to, uh, uh, I mean, the phone is a mass, mass market device, right? So then you go back to the question of how do you make the Apple Watch a mass market device for it to be a Trojan horse for the phone? I don't know. I think that the one that they are trying to attack the message market is a much more valid point versus that they want to redefine the category like what they did with the phone. I mean, now yeah, so if, even for the car, it seems make, to make more sense now that Apple should be making a car because all the existing car industry is really commoditized and they can yeah, actually leapfrog on that. I find it much easier to believe that Apple is planning to build a disruptive car than it is to believe that the Apple Watch is going to create a new smartphone-like category. The car actually seems a, a lot more plausible in mm. that sense. I think we have a pretty much long chat about the watch. I think we can definitely take a look again when the numbers come out for the first quarter, how many watches that they sell. and then. I don't think Apple is going to be revealing the numbers. I think they, uh, during their last results, they stated that the Apple Watch is going to be included under accessories so they will not be revealing separate results for it but you can't let a data point like say if you have 7 million watch so and it becomes a defining category if it does explode apple is probably going to find a way to to put those numbers in but right. at least for now they have stated that it's not they're not going to break out those results which which also they did for the ipad and then suddenly everybody started buying ipads yep and then <laughs> for, and then the next two years the ipad numbers go down because there's an inherent rushing into buying ipads but the ipads changing cycle is actually three to four years rather than two years as compared to the phone replacement cycle. i'm not even sure that honestly that there is a replacement cycle for ipads because when you look at the first ipad and okay not maybe not the first but the ipad 2 the ipad 2 was on sale for a very long time because it was good enough for what people wanted to get done mm. and i think the problem is 
uh, Apple's found it difficult to move up market into productivity because app developers were still having trouble trying to figure out how to use the that inter- interaction model to build new kinds of productivity apps. Maybe the IBM partnership will help them. So that was one problem why it wasn't necessarily a replacement cycle for the iPad. Correct. Just wrong, wrong. I, I have the same exact problem. I tried my best to actually work on the iPad using Microsoft Word. I still uh, prefer yes. my laptop. Exactly. So I, yeah. I don't know. I, I still use it as a media consumption device, like a reading or yep. listening to something. Otherwise, I wouldn't be using it. Okay, yeah, shall yeah, we yeah. move on to the next topic? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. I'm going to start off two episodes ago. I interviewed uh-huh. Gang Kanai uh, from Mozilla. And there is a question that was thrown in sometime around the interview. We edited it out because it was a question that I thought I was just out of curiosity and that is basically Firefox Mobile OS. So Firefox Mobile OS was designed straight for a mobile market. It follows the ethos very similar to what Google have for the original Chrome OS and what Steve Jobs wanted even for the apps to be developed on the browser rather than develop it native with the phone. But of course Android and iOS changed that paradigm. Given that Firefox OS was actually done a lot on the low-end side doing the $29 phone, the Cherry mobile phone in Philippines and the $33 smartphone, people have also done KDDI in Japan actually developed a high-end smartphone version of Firefox OS. Given that the monetization for developers may be a small percentage, if you have listened to that interview, why wouldn't they just develop a Firefox OS that could compete with Chrome OS for desktop version. So that's the basis of it. So I asked that question and he stumbled and then we decided that we just skip the question and then later we had this really interesting discussion after the podcast. So I, I thought maybe now it's more convenient for us to talk about this given okay. that we both don't work for Mozilla. And I, that but I thought it was my... obvious basically that they should have built a desktop version to just compete with Chrome OS because Google well, is, is making a a mess out of trying to integrate Chrome and Android at the moment. And the way I see it is that if they build a desktop version, they're really competing for a very small niche market, right? Because when you look at Chrome OS today, it's, it's got a fairly small share in the, in the, in the entire, uh, in no, the grander scheme in of... In the things. emerging markets, is a very, very important operating system. In fact, a lot of school students in emerging markets are using Chrome. Education, yeah. In the education uh, sector... In the education uh, sector, it's even been fairly popular in the US, but again, even the education market is, is fairly small when you look at the overall PC industry. I mean, Fire, the goal of Firefox OS to, to compete with Chrome will be to get more users on, onto, uh, onto their browser, right? Firefox and right. potentially their phone, yeah. So if, if, when, you, when you look at those two, those two right, so a smartphone OS versus a desktop OS, even if they got a really, really small percentage of the smartphone market, which they do have, it, it's a fairly small percentage, the number of users there would be far, far higher than they would on, on desktop. I mean, to be honest, I never count Cyanogen as the third mobile OS. I see Firefox OS That's true. because the paradigm is totally different. Honestly, to me, I, I don't see a third mobile OS at all. Okay, you that you agree. agree. Okay. But <laughs> here's, here lies the problem. The reason why I set up this Firefox OS conversation is because uh-huh. of this web app versus native app world. Google uh-huh. is having problems now with Android because they forgot about what made them superior in the first place they should have just gone back to the web app model i disagree there because uh, you 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 have different <laughs> arguments with that but yeah, but, but yeah. You, you look at what is happening now that all the oems are ganging up on them you know they are working with microsoft and cyanogen i think micromax your native town uh, mobile smartphone exactly. is now adopting cyanogen everybody hates it 
Google. Why? But I mean, if you look closer at closer at that argument, right? Uh, Micromax did adopt Cyanogen, but the reason they did so was because it was easy to do because Cyanogen is still using Google services. If anything happens with Cyanogen, if Cyanogen decides, I mean, they seem to want to go down down that path for some reason. If they seem to decide to swap out Google services for something else. OEMs will have to pick between building Android, Google-supported Android phones and building forked Android phones because Google does not allow OEMs to build forked versions and non-forked versions. Yeah, but have you noticed recently that Cyanogen, I mean, ever since they raised their 80 million from Benchmark and Andreessen Horowitz, they are yeah. starting to incorporate Microsoft services into their OS? That's because Microsoft is an investor in Cyanogen as well. No, no according to the reports I actually checked, uh, Microsoft didn't partake in that investment. No, Actually, not never. Yeah. As far as I know, they they were part of a previous round, a really small investment. Ah, okay, correct, correct. Like again, there's lots of OEMs that preload other services like Opera and, and things like that. So in this case, Microsoft is just another preloaded service. But as long as Synergy stays compatible with Google services, which they are now and they might not be in the future, they aren't really a challenge for Google. So t- today, when Microsoft Micromax uh, launches a U smartphone. The only reason they did that was because they had to find a way to compete with Xiaomi. Synergy really. Has no impact on Google's outlook there. Now, long term, I think what's happening uh, all of a sudden, why Synergen's become so bold is that the VCs want Synergen to become something much larger than it is. They don't see a way for Synergen to become really large while they're they are under Google's umbrella. So, what I think what they see is Synergen has one one percent shot of becoming something large without Google and a ninety nine percent chance of failure. If they uh, without Google, right, and they take that bet because they want a big payoff. They don't want a small payoff. But the OEMs are not doing Google any favors either. They have been I, trying I to put their own bloated wear on a- Android. But that's happened for like the last last five years. That's not really a new movement now, is it? Correct. But I think they are also changing tack to kind of push Google towards to be more relaxed with uh, Android. When, I'm not sure uh, OEMs have that kind of hold that kind of power over Google. So, for example, the latest uh, Samsung negotiation that happened with Google, mm-hmm. Samsung basically had to strip off all the bloatware away from their phones because Google said so. But they put all the bloatware back. If you look at the Samsung S6 Edge, from it's actually, it's, it's still less than reports. what. Yeah. It's still less than what it was before, and, and I think part of that is because Google wields that kind of power over OEMs. Because if Google decides one particular OEM does not have access to Google services, their sales will tank. The problem with Google doing Android is also gi- giving them problems. I I I know that the Google's view of Android was that they want to do exactly what Microsoft did twenty years ago. But it, to me, it feels that it's badly executed. In what way? It's badly executed because if you look at the PC industry where they where Microsoft became very dominant, the OEMs all fall in line. No one has adopted a second operating system at that point in time in that twenty years. As compared to in mobile, where I think two to three years, all the OEMs are beginning to like your Android enterprise version is just too restrictive. We can't put our bloated where. We are trying to find alternatives. We would rather create my own Tizen. Some of them decided to use Firefox OS. You know, they are all trying to do things against that's Google. Not, It's because also necessarily... partially because of the advertising model of Google. Google needs their services to be online to go into the operating system. That's why in China a... they don't make money because everybody fucked Android basically. I actually have a slightly different take here. Mm. Uh, this actually is very similar to what happened in the PC industry in the early nineties. Okay. So in the early nineties, the one dominant PC manufacturer was IBM, right? Yeah. And that IBM is the equivalent to what Samsung was today. And IBM, once Windows came out, 
and they started being attacked by the PC clones. They actually did try to develop alternative systems. They just never worked because they weren't totally Windows compatible. And once they came out of the noise that was Windows compatible, developers just kept developing for Windows. This trend has happened before, and it's it's a natural trend. Right? Once someone starts being commoditized, they're going to try and differentiate. It's just that at that point, you're fighting you're fighting against a whole ecosystem, and that never works. And I think that's exactly what's happening on Android right now. Except uh, there's, a duopoly, there's a duopoly because iOS is also a dominant ecosystem. Yeah, but that, well. that doesn't affect most OEMs, right? They're being commoditized nonetheless. It's not like they have an option to switch to iOS. <laughs> if they did, then it would, be, it would be an OS duopoly. But from, for, an, for an OEM, it's pretty much a monopoly that they're dealing with. Yeah, so why wouldn't the, the OEMs go for another operating system then? They're going they, to try, and, and I think they have tried. It's just that... The moment uh, a new operating system comes in, whether they're building it or they're licensing, uh, licensing it, that OE, that operating system has to start from scratch. There is no ecosystem there. And all of a sudden, you're taking an app-less phone out to market and the phone, phone doesn't sell. This happened to Windows Phone. This this has happened to Tizen, which is why Tizen phones have been postponed for so long. This has happened to Firefox OS. And it's, I think it's happening to Sailfish. It's pretty much every OS out there. And Cyanogen, is, I think if they strip away from Google, they're going to have the exact same problem. And Google's made it even harder to do that because of what they've done with Google Play services. Because they haven't just said, okay, you can't have access to Google Play. Developers can't even build apps for forked Android devices because Google pulls away APIs that are fairly critical. Location APIs, things like payment APIs, things like that. Which means the platform developer, the forked platform developer have to, has to build their own APIs and then ensure that their user base is large enough so that it, it, it's worthwhile for a developer to use those APIs and build a customized app. And that just does not work. And I think that's why Cyanogen is going to fail. Okay, then how about Google? Android is going to be in different versions. And I think you wrote something about their next billion pro- problem, right? That's true. So uh, one of the views of a meme that's been started, started out by a couple of analysts, which is peak Google, right? The argument is that Google's taken their business model as far as they can. There are other tech giants that are going to take over the next billion, billion and Google cannot effectively take advantage of that. So the way I see it is, it's not that I disagree with the argument that the next billion is a problem for Google. I do agree with that. But the next billion is a problem for every single tech giant out there. There is not a single tech giant today, not Tencent, not Facebook, not Google, not Apple that can monetize the next billion effectively. Because you're looking at users that have purchasing power and, and I mean their income is, they live on less than $2 a day. They don't have access to credit cards. And because they make that much money, they're not valuable to advertisers. So just because they're using WhatsApp doesn't mean that Facebook can monetize those users. Just because they're playing a game doesn't mean they're going to make in-app purchases. There are companies that can monetize these users, but their business models, these companies are far smaller and their business models are very, very different from today's tech giants. So when you look at companies like Duolingo and OpenSignal, these are the companies that are going to be effective at monetizing these customers. So what OpenSignal does is it helps users understand what the wireless signal is in their area. And it just uses that data to create a worldwide database of wireless connectivity across telecom operators, Wi-Fi signals, etc. And it sells these to, to government agencies, this database to government agencies and to the telecom operators themselves. They're monetizing the data itself and the purchasing power of the individual doesn't matter. Uh, even Duolingo, right? What they do is they use an algorithm to combine user translations to translate real-world documents for their, their customers. So again, it doesn't matter if an African farmer is making those translations or with Donald Trump making those translations. So those business models are valuable for, uh, uh, will be effective in monetizing the next billion. It's not going to be Google, it's not going to be Facebook. But here's the thing, I think Facebook is also, think has its own interpretation of how, what the next billion problem is. And I think that that vision is very similar to the third conversation we have about 
WeChat. We'll get back to that one, but okay, let me yeah. let me Go, yep. let, let me yeah. add add one point, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So even when you look at WeChat today, how does WeChat make money? They make money via e-commerce. They make money via payments. They make money via uh, a gaming platform that's connected to, uh, to them. So whenever a user makes an in-app purchase, they get a share of it. All in pretty much all three of these situations. It's reliant on generating money from the consumer directly. So, which means the, uh, if your consumers have a, uh, a fair amount of purchasing power, they will be valuable uh, to you, to your to this particular business model. Mm. But in a in a case in a case where a consumer makes less than two dollars a day, they don't have the discretionary income to spend on this, on these kinds of kinds of expenses. So while they might use your your service, they are not going to be able to monetize. Them. But what about the prepaid cards model? I think WeChat also do that, right, in China. Yeah, they do. But again, think about it. Mm. If a user makes has access to, let's say, a hundred dollars a couple of weeks or a hundred dollars a month, they might think about buying a prepaid card and spending some money on in-app purchases. If you're looking at a farmer in Africa or a farmer in Bangladesh who earns less than two dollars, they're using that money to buy food, the, the bare essentials. Right? They are not going to make in-app purchases. I really doubt that. There is still a way to monetize, and there's a lot of those users. There is a way to monetize them, but it's not compatible with the business model of today's tech giant. I mean, that doesn't mean that they these people will, will not use Google services or Facebook services. They will, but they just cannot be monetized with their existing business models. And Google and Facebook aren't going to turn their business models on their heads to monetize those users because the incremental revenue will be far lower than the revenue they lose on their, on their other customers. So in, in this way, the way people talk about Apple being a premium tire and Apple will not go lower than that, that way I think Google and Facebook are the mass market. And then there's a sub mass market for that. That is the next billion, where Google and Facebook will be okay with those customers using their services, but they're not going to attempt to monetize them. Mm. So let me ask you then. So between something like a Micromax and a Xiaomi in the India market, who will have a better chance then? It's probably not Google or Facebook, right? It's probably one of these like you know. I, honestly, if you're talking this sub, this so-called the sub tier that you're talking about, on there. Honestly. If we're looking at the next billion customers, it's neither. Xiaomi, I think, is still in, in the mass market. Ma- Micromax, I, I think, is going to be a commoditized hardware manufacturer in the mass market. Now, on the hardware side, I, I think we need to differentiate this clearly. I think a lot of OEMs, a lot of analysts get confused about this. Mm. On a, from a hardware perspective, the sub-mass mass market and the mass market are going to look very similar. Not in terms of price points, but in terms of OEMs. Because these OEMs need that volume to keep their business going. Because from a cost perspective, they need to have that scale. So both Xiaomi, uh, Micromax, a lot of smaller OEMs called in, like Intex, they will be players in this market. Like even Nokia had $20 for phones. They didn't make a whole lot of money on that, but because of their scale, they needed to make those phones. They, need, they needed to sell a lot of them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the services that are monetized in the mass market will be the same as the services that are monetized in the sub-mass market. But isn't that what Firefox OS is trying to do? New market that you talk about, the next billion market? I mean, their, I phones so, are, their, their phones are cheap and I think they don't do, their business models are very different from these tech giants. Exactly, but it is different, but it's not different enough. It They can't monetize the data directly that they're generating. I think the, their business model requires partnerships. There's actually partnerships with the carriers in that specific market. So it's actually very customized. And, it's partnership, and, but that's not, the, and that's also, not the kind of data I mean. Correct. correct I correct. mean, when a consumer is interacting with an app, they generate data, right? Their interaction data. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about services that monetize that data directly. I think that's still not compatible with Firefox's model. I think we're looking at companies like Duol- Duolingo and OpenSignal 
I, I'll give you another example of what exactly I mean. There was a cancer research UK built a game called Play to Cure Genes in Space. So it's basically a space shooter. Uh, people are supposed to go uh, fly around in space and collect some sort of element. Mm. And the way the game was designed is Cancer Research UK actually studies the paths that gamers take in space and they use those paths to analyze cancer research data. This game helped them save six months of manual data research from scientists and researchers that earn quite a lot of money. That's the kind of business model I'm talking about. I think that is the business model that will work for the next billion. It's a very specific kind of business model and there are very few tech giants today that can, uh, there are no tech giants today, let me say that, that, that can effectively use a business model like that. Then how about Google's vision of Android? So how is it going to change then? I mean, I don't people think have different perspective. What's your perspective then? Honestly, I don't think it's going to change because Google's vision of Android is built on the mass market using their services and them monetizing the mass market. For that, they have to go through OEMs. The OEMs themselves have a different motivation and that they need scale to for their business models to survive if not work. So the OEMs are present in the mass market and the sub-mass market. Google is present in the mass market and they're present in the sub-mass market but it's not monetized there. Android's vision doesn't really change. It's going to be the same. As far as I, in, in my head, it's going to be the same at least distribution model for them. How Android itself changes is, is, a, is a different question. But I, I know some uh, analysts think that in the sub-mass market, you're, you're gonna, because those users have different needs, you're going to have different operating systems come up. That makes very little sense to me because no matter what operating system comes up, it's not like open signals building their own operating system. Those companies are not interested in, in, in that particular space. And those are the only companies that can effectively monetize their space from a services viewpoint. So you're going to have the same operating system. It's just that what's going to happen on top of that operating system is, is, what, uh, is what's going to be interesting. Basically, coming back to the, the other question that we have, Facebook cloning WeChat. So first quarter prediction. Oh, take checkbox yep. for you as well. <laughs> you, you, you got a messenger and I got a cloning, okay? Yeah. That's true, yes. I, I'm surprised that they didn't do it for WhatsApp. I'm also surprised that they didn't allow the Facebook pages API to go into the messenger. They are focusing a lot on the apps part first because exactly. what, what makes WeChat really superior is the pages. The, the, yep. the equivalent of the Facebook pages app um, in Chinese, I, I'm just going to mention, it's called Tingyue Hao, where it's actually a common sub subscription page. You can actually view content and you also have custom actions. Is what you and I talk about as interaction layers that the uh -huh. interaction models is so efficient that basically I could order a taxi using those subscri subscription pages. But uh -huh. somehow Facebook wanted to do it as an app. I, I think there's, there's a reason for that. Right now, what Facebook's doing with pages is trying to enable direct business to customer kind of communication. So what they've done is they've got their Facebook pages on Facebook that didn't work particularly well. Mm. And they're trying to scale it to mobile and to create a one-to-one -one communication channel between a, a business and a customer. And I think they don't want to, because that is a long-term monetization model for them in terms of allowing direct communication. I think they're following the line model here, not the WeChat model. Uh, what they're doing with apps is, hey, have, I think they've been very, very successful in monetizing apps through app install ads. Right? So I think they've got that in mind as well. So right now they've got a whole lot of apps connected to Messenger and when when you send a bit of content to someone else on Messenger, they have the option to install the app where that content came from. So I, I think that what they're trying to implement is social discovery right now for apps because discovery for apps has been a problem. You made a very good point about that Facebook follows Line closer than following WeChat. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so uh, Line has a service called Line Business Connect. 
which it, what what it is is it's basically brands have brand channels on it you can choose to follow a particular brand and, th- and that way you're getting giving that brand permission to send messages to you and you can communicate directly with them i think this happened on kakao talk as well mm. but i think Li- lines the bigger example and it, line actually, actually, actually wechat has it too is is called kongjong hao is is but it's not as powerful it's as slightly the, different the app version yeah, yeah. It's, it's like yeah, it's, it's less powerful different. than thing where how basically well, line actually has subscription plans for businesses to uh, to allow them to send messages to, uh, to their followers it, it's effectively a form of direct advertising and what what we've seen is that there's, there's been some case studies on kakao talk where the response rate on these uh, on these direct messages is immensely high i mean far higher than anything you've seen so far so i think uh, kakaota ran a pilot with a japanese retailer called uniqlo about 20% of all coupons they sent on that platform were open and 40% of those opened were redeemed so they had a redemption rate of 8% which is far higher than almost any other form of advertising you would see across the industry it's, it's also because their integration on the from the online to the offline world is also quite seamless yeah. because i mean when i mean was in tokyo last year I was actually looking at the Love's line page. When I am inside the line store, I just need to make a very quick scan yeah. to get a particular discount code. There's actually, I think somehow those numbers is actually also the way how they integrate it offline across with the brands itself as well. So what are they going to do about WhatsApp then? I think as of now, WhatsApp is going to remain the way it is and they're going to scale. I think Facebook's goal has been for to get WhatsApp to 1 billion users. Right now, I think... Facebook Messenger is their experimentation platform because if Facebook Messenger the it's mo- is most popular in the US right so even if they end up annoying a couple of their customers because of some of these initiatives it's very likely they're going to, those customers are moving to WhatsApp so they're not really losing those customers so i think that's why they they're okay taking this risk on Facebook Messenger and then they'll figure out what works and then lo- over the long term maybe 2 or 3 years down the line that's when they scale it to WhatsApp actually i don't use the Facebook Big Blue app i like the paper app which is some people call it the flipboard clone but it's kind of a nice interface because i don't have advertisements there uh-huh. so i don't know is whatsapp going to follow that kind of strategy where they are just not going to touch anything maximize the customer convenience but they still own those users but what are they going to do about them then i have have a hard time seeing that i think in the short term i think they are going to do that but long term i think they i mean facebook paper at least was a way to drive customers drive more engagement on the news feed at some point right? i think whatsapp does not quite have that same chain so i think they are going to implement a platform approach for whatsapp i think they just want to wait until whatsapp achieves much a much bigger scale because i think the engagement on whatsapp far outstrips the engagement on messenger i think that's what they've seen at least globally There's about 600 million users now on WhatsApp based on what I saw on the F8 keynote from Mark Zuckerberg. Currently for Facebook it's about 1.4 billion users uh-huh. on the Messenger. Yeah. But I I guess Messenger is more focused on the US market because in the Asia market it's just basically dominated between WeChat, Line and KakaoTalk. That's true. Yeah, and in some some pockets like India it's, it's becoming WhatsApp now. That's another interesting part about how messaging is regionalizing right now, but what happens long term is will, will be interesting because right now even a lot of the Asian messaging apps seem to be struggling as well with growth, right? Because they're investing into growth but the growth's not coming up. The the problem with WeChat I think is obvious is because they haven't opened up their API and their brand pages outside China. So I have been thinking about get engaging Chinese customers true wechat the problem with it is that you still need to register as a chinese registered company to get a brand page for okay, wechat yeah, so you you yeah. have you have to have a chinese social security number buying is okay. a little bit more open where you can actually register for that brand page 
by directly liaising with their commercial side. I don't know about KakaoTalk, but I guess Facebook has its advantage because the API is known and yeah, that's true. They, they are actually pretty responsive if you want to do business with them. Yeah, and, and and they do have uh, fa- fairly good times with both brands and app developers, right? So th- access is not really a problem for them. Mm. So, what what would you see would be the most interesting thing coming out from Messenger? I'm really interested in the social discovery that they're trying to push. Kind of happening is at least based on their on the F8 conference, right? Users keep discovering new kinds of apps through their own social interactions. So, does this eventually lead to a sort of social page rank, a social equivalent of page rank for apps? And if so, how does that help app discovery long term? In some sense, I think social discovery is not going to fit every single app, but it's going to fit certain kinds of apps, especially content-driven ones, gaming apps, pub- publishers like ESPN. Uh, GIF apps, things like this, things that are more likely to go viral socially. But it would be more like a curation channel rather than a discovery channel, right? Because is the power of content still go still rests with the media owners. The only problem is that they are actually commoditizing them as the way it goes. I mean, I don't know well, that, for, yeah. for what reason that New York Times would sign on with them to put their content on Facebook. <laughs> I think that's that, that's mostly because publishers don't have a choice. You you go where you're a publisher, you go where the engagement is. Uh, it's a lot like what OEMs had to do with Android, right? So it's either commoditized, be commoditized or die. So I think being commoditized is a better option. Okay. And you try to create a business model on top of it. So they're going to create a subscription model based on the messenger model. I can see that happening actually. They might, but honestly, I think subscription models are going to become more and more difficult as time goes on. I, I know a lot of observers have a viewpoint that a subscription-based content is the way to go, but I, I, I honestly think that's uh, that's a short-term perspective right now because as content keeps getting better, you're going to find it much more difficult to, to get consumers to pay for it. What you're saying is that no one pays for content then? Few people pay for content and it will be even fewer as we go forward. Then we just get computers to write our news for us then? <laughs> I mean, I mean, that, that's what you're essentially saying, right? You have to find alternative ways. You have to find more creative business models, right? Every time commoditization happens on one layer, you have another layer that uh, that creates an opportunity to make money. So advertising, for example, was, was one particular channel. Uh, a second kind of channel long term could be figure out what kind of content consumers are using and find out how that data helps advertisers separately without the advertising uh, interfering with the content directly. I have a different perspective to that. I think the content business, if you're looking at the high-end site where you need exclusive access to certain kinds of data, that uh-huh. form of content is still monetizable. Well, that the, part the certainly prob- is. The specific kind of data, right? Yeah. yeah. The problem is with things like news where content can be easily, readily available online. Exactly. I would actually draw a firm line between data and content. I think data is very valuable. Content, not as much. Content, I think, drives engagement. And I think you have to find a way to monetize that engagement and not monetize the content directly. Okay. And then you think that data is different from content because people want data, pay for data, but not pay for content. Yeah, because content is freely available. Data is not. Then it doesn't explain. HBO set the price for $15, which was exactly the same campaign that was <laughs> done two years ago, right? Remember there was a Twitter meme yeah. that goes out that I would pay $15 for HBO and surprise, surprise, HBO actually set the price at $15 for yeah. their HBO. Honestly, to me, to me, HBO is not doing anything different. All they've done is change the distribution channel. And, and I think this is the puzzling thing about what's going on in TV right now. People are talking about cord cutting and Netflix and HBO now and the new Apple TV service. But all it's done is it's taken the same sort of economics that apply in the TV industry, the bundle of channels or the bundle of TV shows, and you take them and put them on an online channel. 
So there's, it's it's not really very different. You're still paying for everything. But uh, will there be any other business models other than bundling? I don't know. I'm not honestly. I think the existing TV distribution model has gone about as far as it can with with uh, because of the economics. I think the disruption of TV is going to come not from existing TV shows but from YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, like bite-sized content that is that is produced at a very very low cost. And that costs no money to watch. I think no. that's where the disruption is. Oh yeah, you exclude Snapchat. <laughs> no, no, I will include Snapchat. Obviously, I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. For <laughs> yeah, ephemeral, ephemeral delivery of advertisements. You see for 15 seconds, and it just disappears. Yeah, and, and honestly, that's why I, I've read somewhere that Snapchat Discover has become really prime property for media distribution. There's already a hundred thousand dollar deals that are happening on that platform right now, and, and advertisers are paying through the nose because the engagement there is so high. And again, the consumers there, there don't pay anything. And I think that's those are the kind of models that are going to be disruptive to TV long term. I think the cord cutting part that we're hearing right now is just moving the, the, the same economics and the same distribution model to just to a different channel. It's basically, you're only solving the symptoms but not the problem itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are the things that you are most excited about these days? Before I ask you where people can find you, you know, maybe it's we should talk about what we're going to talk about in the next couple of months. I mean, you're going to have WWDC, <laughs> Google, when I get you back well, online. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll have WWDC, Google, uh, we'll, we'll have the Apple, launch be, uh, Apple Watch launch behind us, which I'm fairly certain will sell out during launch we will have a little more insight into where facebook messenger is going and we'll have a little more insight into this periscope versus meerkat phenomenon that seems to be gripping tech reporters these days oh yes meerkat and <laughs> periscope i tried both but i haven't really put on my own video yet maybe because culturally i'm not so such a live streaming kind of person i'm much the same but it, uh, a lot of people seem to seem to have taken up but i think the interesting part here is there's not that many broadcasters but there may be many more viewers so but i think meerkat's challenge is that they don't have an, an inbuilt distribution model so i think that's a disadvantage for them so they rely too much on twitter and i think that's why periscope is going to be probably long uh, have a better long-term shot so here's what i don't understand why facebook hasn't talked to meerkat yet that that is interesting to me. I, I think, <laughs> I, I think that if that 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 acquisition would make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I, uh, I, it is obvious that Facebook would just acquire Meerkat outright. Actually, wait. Uh, now that I think about it, both Meerkat and Periscope are broadcast channels, right? So what That's you right. you would see, they're basically one-way broadcast, and Facebook is basically a two-way private social network. It's more difficult for a Facebook user to broadcast on on Facebook when he has a finite number of friends versus broadcast on Twitter where he might have millions of followers. No, you can do it for pages where you need to engage your brands. Brand exactly, pages. but then but there you, I think Meerkat and, and Periscope are fairly one-to-one communication channels where you have a lot of people following one particular user. So it's, it's not so much following a brand or following a company, but it's following a, a, a tech reporter, for example, who has a lot of, who has a lot of followers. So for a Facebook page, and engagement on Facebook uh, Facebook pages tends to be less than on Twitter mainly because the, it's algorithmic. It's almost that Facebook uh, has told Facebook pages that your content is now not going to be seen by any of your followers unless you advertise. Right? You, you know what we should do? When I'm coming to London in May and we finally meet up for the first time, we can do a meerkat or Paris yeah. at the same time. Or, yeah, which, whichever one is bigger at that point in time. Yeah, we should. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Whichever the one that you know, Twitter can allow us to easily allow us to broadcast to our social graph. Where can my audience find you? Uh, I blog at tech-thoughts.net, and you can find me on Twitter at Samir underscore Singh one seven. Mm. And 
they also know that you work for app any right <laughs> yeah but, but to clarify none of my comments on this show were in any way uh, supported by app any these are my personal opinions i will add that <laughs> i will add that into the show notes for you <laughs> to give you absolute of uh, free of liability you can also find me at bernardleong.com or at bleongcw and if you want to follow us on Analyze Asia at Analyze Asia and analyzeasia.com you can listen to us from SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes and we would like you to put a comment in our podcast in iTunes because whether it's one star or five star we really want your opinions so once again Samir thank you thanks Bernard it was great here